Ruth chapter 1, pick me up in verse 1. Let me just read the narrative to us. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name, names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were, make note of this, Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Man. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Who, who, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, my, that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts, from, parts me from you. Ruth is right or die. And when, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came, make note of this, to Bethlehem at the beginning of, underline this phrase, barley harvest. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God.
His name was Bob Gross. And boy, did his NBA team need him. The season was winding up, and this NBA team, if they had any hopes of making the playoffs, they had a big game coming up that they had to win. But there was a problem. Their, their big star, Bob Gross, had a severely injured ankle that was shooting pain all throughout his body. No problem, they thought. We can get Bob to play. And so not long before tip-off, they brought in a doctor, and a doctor injected some, some painkillers into three places in Bob Gross's foot, totally numbing the pain. Tip-off happens. The game commences. A couple sequences later, Bob Gross goes up for a rebound, and when he comes down, all the players on the court all said the same thing. We heard a loud snap. But since Bob couldn't feel anything, he didn't know anything was wrong. So he got up, tried to run down court, and immediately crumpled back down on the floor. And that not only was the end of the game for Bob, that was also the end of his career. Bob Gross's inability to feel pain ruined his career. It's counterintuitive, but oftentimes pain is our greatest gift. I, this messes us up because you and I try to structure our lives in such a way in which we're, we're pain-free. We, we, we want to do everything we can to not feel it and to, and to avoid it, but, but it really is a counterintuitive principle of life that more than being harmful, pain is actually helpful. I'm thinking now of Dr. Paul Brand. At one time, he was the world's foremost scholar when it comes to pain. He had given his life to working with a leper colony in India. If you know anything about the disease of leprosy, what makes leprosy so bad is lepers can't feel pain. Because they can't feel pain, they do irreparable damage to themselves. So here's Dr. Paul Brand. He is immersing himself in the lives of these lepers, analyzing their pain, studying their pain. And after a, li a lifetime of studying pain, here's what he says. Look at it with me. He writes, pain is often seen as the great inhibitor keeping us from happiness. But I see it as a giver of freedom was the great writer and intellectual C.S. Lewis who continues Dr. Brand's train of thought by connecting the assets of pain to God when he writes, look at it, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts to us in our pains. Pain, C.S. Lewis writes, is his megaphone to rouse a deaf, a deaf world pain, stewarded right, is far more helpful than it is harmful. I want to plead with you this morning from the subject, don't waste your pain. If there's one word that sums up Ruth chapter 1, it is the word pain. 
There's one word that we can kind of fit the whole narrative of, of Ruth 1 into. It's, it's, it's the word pain. Our text is riddled with pain. Here is Naomi. She starts off in Bethlehem. This is interesting. You know what Bethlehem means? It means the house of bread. And yet right off the bat in verse 1, we're told ain't no food in the house of bread. Isn't that something? There's a famine in the land. There's pain here. Here's Naomi. She has to uproot her whole life. Uh, the, the friendship she's made, the relationships she's nurtured, the school she sent her kids to, all of that is uprooted. And she immediately has to leave. Think of the pain in that. Think of the pain of literally not, not being able to have food and looking at a bare pantry. But it gets worse. The Bible says she has a son, and, and that son's name is Malon. You need to understand in antiquity, they didn't just get out a big book of names, thumb through, and, and kind of say, um, that sounds cool, and because that sounds cool, let's name our kid that. That's not how they did names back in the day. Names were a statement of character. And she decided to name one of her boys Malon. You know what Malon means? Weak or sickly. Either she named him that immediately because this child was diagnosed with some kind of debilitating disease. Or maybe the child was born healthy and later on she changed the name to Malon. In either case, her plight in life as a mama was to watch a struggling, disabled child struggle. Some of y'all been there, done that. My wife and I, we could tell you about sitting at St. Jude's Children's Hospital for years, dealing with a child they said had an incurable disease. Well, we know that pain. But it gets worse. Her husband dies. Both of her children die. Parents aren't supposed to bury kids. And if that's not enough, the text actually tells us that she's an Ephrathite. This is as deep and technical as it gets. She's from Bethlehem. That's a statement of her ethnicity. She's Jewish. Being an Ephrathite is a statement of her class. It's like saying she's from Palo Alto. Or better yet, was it Portillo Valley? Here she is. It's the equivalent of saying, if I was preaching this text in the 19th century, she's a Vanderbilt. If I was preaching in the 20th century, she's a Kennedy. She's a Zuckerberg. Girlfriend had a lot of money. And just like that, pain comes knocking her way and bankrupts her. I can just throw this in there for free. Be careful what you're seeking for identity. If you lean in on anything else outside of Jesus Christ, God will come get it. Right. 
See, this helps me because I think the narrator, by saying that she's an Ephrathite, a wealthy person, an upper-class person who suffers, I think one of the things the narrator is helping us to see is a fundamental property of pain is pain does not discriminate. Pain doesn't have implicit bias. Pain ain't prejudice. Ain't no redlining when it comes to pain. Pain will come get you in the projects and in the gated community and everything in between. Keep inhaling and exhaling, as my mama used to say. See, I think what the narrator is helping us to see is pain is universal. Pain is inescapable. We all know that, don't we? We can just call the roll. Some of you all know the pain of growing up in a broken home. You've endured the pain of watching your parents get divorced. Some of you know the pain of a parent who just wasn't there. Others of us, we know the pain of failure. Failed at school, failed at a job. Others of us know the pain of doing all we can to make ends meet. I'm doing the best, but I keep coming up short. Others of us know the pain of trying to raise that child in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but that child is making unwise decision after unwise decision after unwise decision, and that is, that is pain. Others of us know the pain of divorce. You go, I wasn't the perfect spouse. I, I did the best that I could. But here I am, I get cheated on. Others of you know the pain of bankruptcy. We just keep calling the rolls. If you don't know pain, it's... You, you, you must be a couple months old. Pain is inescapable. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, and yet shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone. To rouse a deaf world. So the question on the table I want to explore with you is what do we do and what do we need to fundamentally understand when pain comes our way? I'm not trying to be masochistic here. I'm not saying pray for pain or any of that. No, no, you ain't got to pray for it. (laughs) Just keep doing what you do. And pain's going to come your way. Don't even put it on the prayer list. It's that perfect elephant gift, that white elephant gift. It's going to come. What, what, what do I do with it? Bless you. First thing you have to understand when pain comes your way is pain is always purposeful. Pain is never random. It's never haphazard. Pain is always purposeful. Either God decrees it or God allows it. Pain has a purpose. 
We see this in broad strokes in our text. Notice what happens to Naomi when, when pain comes her way. In, in, in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, there's, there's a pain of a famine that comes her way. She's enduring the pain of that. But, but all of a sudden, she, in the middle of this pain, they just decide to uproot from the house of bread that doesn't have any, house, that doesn't have any bread to go to, another, to go to another place. So literally, this pain moves her. She gets to Moab, and she endures even more pain. Husband dies, kids die, she loses a daughter-in-law, and what does she do? This pain now moves her back to Bethlehem. And when she gets back to Bethlehem, notice what she says in the text in verse 20. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty." She goes on to say, why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, here's what she's saying. She's saying, listen, the Lord has testified against me. The idea of testified, it is the idea, it's a legal term. It it, it pictures somebody being in a courtroom and building a case against another person. Here's what she's saying. The reason why I'm here is I've done something wrong. And that's where you want to go, time out, girlfriend. You've got God wrong here. See, Naomi's problem is our problem. It's the problem of perspective. See, we have a view that Naomi doesn't have, and that is we want to say, hold on, girlfriend, you just in chapter 1. But little do you know, God is using pain in your life to set you up for a major move of God in your life. So you you need to understand that you only see chapter one, but we see all four chapters. See, our problem is we do exactly what Naomi does. Something happens to us, and we do what C.S. Lewis calls, we put God on the dock. We put God on the defense stand, and we just start complaining and wailing and pouting and throwing spiritual temper tantrums as if we know the end of the story. You don't know the end of the story. God is moving you through the pain. God is setting you up through the pain. God is writing a story through the pain. All the best movies have conflict and there's pain and there's all this stuff. But if you hang in there to the end, you'll be able to look back and say, yeah, you may have meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God used this cancer in my life. He used the betrayal in my life. He used the heartache in my life to get me right where I needed to be. You need to understand prosperity is a terrible teacher. I'll say it again. Prosperity is a terrible teacher. Sometimes the only way God can move us is to introduce us to pain. Pain has a purpose. Thinking now of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes to the Corinthians, but it hurts you only for a little while. Now I am glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, here it is, but because the pain turned you to God. It was a good kind of sorrow you felt, the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. 
Some of us, it's kind of hilarious. God says, you know, I've, in- I've noticed an interesting pattern in your life. I only hear from you when there's pain. Now, I don't know about you. If that's you, I'm, I'm learning that lesson real quick. So God says, if, if I have to use pain to turn you to me, then I'd much rather have you facing me in pain than never facing me at all. Her name was Mary Verghese. Mary Verghese was an up-and-coming medical doctor in the early part of her career until she got into a car with a young man one day, and that car ended up hanging over an overpass bad accident, deeply scarred her face, left her lower extremities paralyzed. Here she is in agonizing pain. A significant amount of time later, her colleagues encouraged her to get back into the medical profession. She's known as India's first wheelchair doctor. She decided to practice medicine in a leper's colony. When she would wheel in, it is said of Mary Verghese, That those lepers would stop their self-pity, they would stop their bitterness, they would stop their cynicism because they're looking at a person whose face is scarred just like theirs. They're looking at a person who's on the outskirts just like they are. They're looking at a marginalized individual just like they are. And they say Mary, more than any other doctor, has an ability to empathize with them that no other doctor could. Why? Mary would say, my pain. Here we learn a valuable lesson. If you want to know know your purpose in life, take inventory of your pain. For oftentimes, purpose is birthed out of pain. I'm often asked the question, Brian, why are you so passionate about the multi-ethnic church? I answer real quickly by telling them, here's where that passion got birthed out of. When I was in Bible college, I was called the N-word by a fellow classmate and colleague of mine who likewise was preparing for the ministry. These words cut me deeply. At one point, I heard God saying, what are you going to do? Are you going to allow that pain to make you bitter, or are you going to allow it to make you better? Nothing happens in your life by accident, child of God. Everything happens for a reason. And I understand this is a tough message because we are kicking against the American God of comfort. And we look at God as some cosmic Santa Claus who exists for us to just have a good time. That would be no God. That would be the cruelest kind of God there is. More than your comfort, God is concerned with your growth. And sometimes he has to use pain. Not only does pain have a purpose, but secondly, pain is transformative. The text says that Naomi and Ruth get back to Bethlehem, the house of bread, and it says the whole city is stirred because of them. This is interesting. I think part of the reason why they're disturbed is, yes, they hadn't seen Naomi in a long time, but when they finally see her, they're shocked. Her season of pain, her tour of duty in her pain has has literally changed her. So they call her what they know her to be, Naomi. I love this. Naomi says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. You know the name Naomi means pleasant, and Mara means 
bitter. Naomi says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Don't call me pleasant anymore. I've just lost a husband. I've, I've lost two kids. I've endured a famine. You, you may have seen me as some chipper person. That was what my mama named me because that was my countenance and that was what she was hoping me to be. And I lived into that. Then all of a sudden trouble hit. And I'm here to tell you it's changed me. Don't call me pleasant. That girl's long gone. Call me bitter. You go through pain. It will change you. The question is, Will your tour of duty in your season of pain make you bitter or better? This is all throughout the scriptures how pain changes us. I could, I could take it to the longest narrative in the book of Genesis. It is about a guy named Joseph. When we first meet Joseph, he's some punk, arrogant kid. He's narcissistic on a whole nother level. I mean, if you put Joseph next to Muhammad Ali, it would make Muhammad Ali look like uh, uh, some pious, humble person. Uh, Joseph's arrogance was off the rails. Kept telling his brothers, y'all going to bow down to me one day. Y'all going to worship me one day. But then we meet this same guy at the end of the story 13, 15 years later. And when he's reunited with his brothers, we catch him crying. We see deep-seated compassion for them. And then he tells them in Genesis 45, listen, in deep compassion, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And he hugs them and embraces them and treats them with, with unprecedented favor to the point where they're shocked. He's changed. Well, what changed him? being sold into bondage, being lied on and betrayed by Potiphar's wife, spending many sleepless nights in tears, being forgotten about in jail. And at some point, Joseph made up his mind, I've, I've got this gift of pain. How will I steward it? I'm, I'm going to steward it in such a way that I'm going to come up out of this bad boy better and not bitter. story is told of a, of a young man who was residing in a village, and there was this village wise man who had the perfect answer to every single question that came his way, and it drove this young man and this village nuts. He made up in his mind, I'm going to stump this wise man. I'm going to put him in a predicament where he doesn't have the answer or he's going to give the wrong answer. So what he decided to do was he was going to go out and buy a bird, put this bird in his hand, stand before the village wise man, and ask this guy a foolproof question. Is this bird alive or dead? If the village wise man said it was dead, he would open up his hands and release the bird, showing that it was alive. If he said that it was alive, he would take this bird and crush it in his hands to show that it was dead. This was a foolproof plan. So he grabs this bird, puts it in his hand, stands before the village wise man, and he says to him, is this bird alive or dead? The village wise man strokes his beard, thinks to himself, and he says, neither. That bird is in your hands. So it is with pain. 
pain is in your hands. You determine, will it kill me? Will it kill my joy? Will it kill my spirit? Will it kill my attitude? Will it poison me? Or will God get glory out this bad boy? Because I ain't going to let the enemy steal my joy. He can take my new car, but he can't take my joy. He can take my health, but he can't take my joy. I'm coming up out of this bad boy full of joy and life and vigor. Pain is in your hands. What will you do with it? My mother and I had an interesting conversation one day. My, my mom was from Philly, Elda Arshel. And she's from the rough part of Philly, street called Diamond. If you're ever in Philly and you see a street called Diamond, it ain't what it seems. My mama grew up rough. Dad was never really a part of her life. My grandmother, her mother, was not a nice person kind of abusive to my mom. And I'll never forget being 16, 17 years old, just, just, just thinking, I, I've got an amazing mother. I said, Mama, knowing the little bit I know about your background, your dad wasn't around, your mama wasn't somebody you'd want to emulate, and yet I'm looking at you, Mom, and, 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 and look at you. You're doing a phenomenal job as a mama. How did that happen? She said, Son, yeah, I went through a lot of stuff. But I made up in my mind as a young teenage girl, if God would ever bless me with kids, my kids will never know the pain I knew in my house. She decided she was going to reverse the curse. Some of the best dads I know are dads who came from fatherless homes, who made up in my mind that, that daddy wasn't around, but that's okay, I have a heavenly father. And when mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me up. I'm going to break the cycle of fatherless men. I'm going to steward my pain in such a way that I'm not going to deposit anger or bitterness or cynicism into the next generation. Pain is in your hands. What will you do with it? Thirdly, let's go home on this one. I love it. Naomi and Ruth been hanging out in Moab. Ruth says, ah, you ain't getting rid of me. I'm, I'm coming home with you. I'm, I'm hitching my wagon to you. I'm, I'm rolling with you. And the text says that when they get to Bethlehem, the house of bread, I love it, here is the narrator, and he drops in a little phrase. He says, they come home at barley season. Now, in the Jewish calendar, this is around what we would call April or May. It's the barley harvest. If you understand anything about the Jews, they celebrated everything. The barley harvest was a time of celebration and, and fun and festivities. There's, there's laughing and singing and dancing. I can almost hear the tambourines beating through the page. Here's Naomi. Girlfriend has gone through a lot. 
She's lost her husband, her kids. She's lost the dog. She's gone through a lot. And yet she's making her way down the long, dusty road from Moab back into Bethlehem. And she hears the singing and the laughing and the dancing. Don't you see the juxtaposition here? She's literally stepping out of one season and stepping into another season. She's literally, it's, it's a literary device that the narrator employs called foreshadowing. When he talks about her coming home at the barley harvest, he wants the reader to understand that girlfriend is about to radically change seasons. She's stepping out of her season of pain into a season of rejoicing and dancing and celebrating, God is about to move in a major way. The season is ending. What do we learn here about pain? Yes, pain has a purpose, and yes, pain is transformative, but fundamentally you must understand that pain is always temporary. As they said in the old Negro spirituals, trouble don't last always. There's another side to pain. I'm thinking now of David. Here is David, a man who's gone through a lot of pain. He spent 15 years on the run from Solomon. Excuse me, from Saul. 15 years dodging spears from this deranged leader. 15 years hiding out in caves. He even loses an infant child. Pain. And yet in Psalm 30, what does David say? Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Trouble does not last always. Your pain is not final. You've seen my wife. She's a little something who's given birth to three big head boys. All natural. All natural. Let me say that one more time for the Holy Ghost. All natural. I got the ripped shirts to prove it. Now, I understand, I shouldn't say this, but if you've had a spouse who's given birth all natural, it wasn't a walk in the park for her and it wasn't a walk in the park for me. I'm not comparing that, by the way, honey. But it's a whole lot of stuff going on. It's a whole lot of things that are taking place and happening here. She's spoken to me in tongues. But here's what blows my mind about my wife. After the first two, at some point she says, I want to do it again. I want to say to her, don't you realize what you've just been through? The pain and the agony and and all of this, all natural, and yet you want to do it again. Why? Two reasons. One, she understood that that season of pain was just that. It was a season. And two, and more importantly, she understood that what was on the other side of the pain made the pain so much more worth it. This is what the writer says of of Jesus when he says in the book of Hebrews, speaking of Jesus who endured the pain of the cross, his beard was plucked out, a crown of thorns was placed on his head, a spear was run through his side, and yet he says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
Jesus. Why did you endure the cross? Because Jesus knows what was on the other side was, was spiritual children. It was people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, there are some things that God cannot develop in us but through pain. It's a message Pastor Gary shared a couple weeks back as he walked us through James chapter 1. Character is not formed through seasons of ease and comfort and prosperity. Maturity happens when the pain comes, and yet when it comes, i got to trust God. He's going to get me through. And in the middle of it, i got to make up in my mind, no, you ain't changing my name tomorrow. I'm staying Naomi. I'm going to be pleasant. I'm going to be sweet. I'm going to be joyful. Yes, I can cry my eyes out to God. Yes, I can ask him to take it away. But I ain't letting no one take away my joy because I understand God is at work. The pain will end. The season will end. Even if he takes me out of this life, I understand what Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The ultimate barley harvest. And eternity with him. As Cormac and the team comes, we see the gospel here, don't we? Here's Ruth in the midst of the season of pain. She says, I'm not leaving you, Naomi. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Scholars tell us what's going on in verses 16 and 17 of Ruth chapter 1 is Ruth is coming to faith in Yahweh. But hear me. How does she come to faith in Yahweh? Pain. God uses pain and suffering. She's lost a husband too. She's enduring a famine too. God uses pain and suffering to bring her to him. Now here's my fear, here's my fear. Pastoring in Silicon Valley. This is one of the most godless places on the face of the earth. 10 million people, two to 3% Christian. And it's also one of the most affluent places on the face of the earth. Those two things go together. I'm not saying there's no pain here. But what we tend to do when pain comes in affluent places, we want to hurry up and get rid of it. We want to turn against God. We want to get bitter with God. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, I'm here to tell you that he's calling you to him just like he called Ruth to him. And God is saying today, would you turn from your ways? Because when he takes us out of this life, yeah, we enjoyed good things here, but we ain't going to stand before God on our jet skis. We ain't going to stand before God on our new house and that perfect zip code. Our standing before God isn't based on what we drive or how much money we... This is a blip on the map of eternity. There's going to come a day when God's going to say, give me back my breath. And we shall behold him face to face. And you're going to look through the rearview mirror of your life. And what are you going to say? Had good times in Tahoe? 
the stuff we go after in this life, when we are with him 10,000 years, we're going to look back and say, foolishness. Foolishness. I gave my life to stuff that in the scheme of things, in the scope of eternity, didn't matter. So I came back from vacation with just a renewed vigor to just plead with you in Teslaville, USA. Teslas aren't unspiritual. If you got a problem with that, email me at pastorgary at alcf.net. They're not unspiritual. Get the point. Your identity better not be in Google. Your identity better not be in Facebook. Your identity better not be in the fact that you own a home in one of the most desirable places in the world. I've done a lot of funerals. I've seen a lot of crazy stuff. I ain't never seen a U-Haul at a cemetery. Naked you came up into this bad boy, and naked you shall return. So I want to make a plea with you. Someone's here today, you don't know Christ, and you're saying, I've been going through some stuff. He whispers to us in our pleasures. Speaks to us in our consciences. Shouts to us in our pains. God is on the megaphone. Saying, will you come to me? divorce you went through wasn't by accident. Will you come to me? The heartbreak you're going through, not by accident. Will you come to me? The cancer you're enduring, not by accident. Will you come to me? So that's the first call. Will you come to Christ? Second and final call. Sometimes we hear the word of the Lord and we put it on layaway. It's not where I'm at right now. I'll come back and get it another time. But sometimes we hear the word of the Lord. It is a word in season. And someone's saying, I'm a believer, but this is a word in season for me because I'm going through some pain. And I just need, I just need prayer and I need help to navigate this season of pain in such a way that I don't turn into Mara. But I, I'm Naomi. I'm pleasant. I'm joyful. And I glorify God in the midst of it. I'm hurting right now. I'm in pain. Could be physical, could be emotional, could be relational, whatever it may be. I'm in pain. I'm in pain. I'm in pain, Pastor. And I need some prayer. I just need some prayer. I'm a believer, but I need some prayer. I want to invite our elders and prayer team people to come to the altar right now. If that's you, I need salvation. I want to be like Ruth. Or I am a believer, but I'm in pain. And I need prayer. I'm going to pray you're going to have strength. Father God, right now, in the name of Jesus, we, we say something crazy. Not that we wish it, but we thank you for the pain in our lives. We're not saying you did it, but we are saying you allowed it. Thank you for loving us enough to get on the megaphone and to grab our attention. So, Father God, as we walk this road, we, we make up in our minds, we ain't, we ain't going to turn in tomorrow. No, we're not going to get bitter. That God, we're going to steward the pain well in such a way that we get better, that we're, we get stronger. 
some man, some woman needs to hear that today. That they're going to leave here resolved to be a better dad, a better mom, a better husband, a better wife, a better friend because of the pain they went through. So thank you for getting on the megaphone today. Now, Lord God, we leave here under your covering. Cover us with your grace. Protect us. Provide for us. Surround us, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray.